Did the ancient Greeks have a secret psychedelic ritual that allowed them to merge with, even become one of, the gods? Has a close historical relationship between psychedelics and meaningful spiritual practice been lost, hidden, or suppressed? And will increased use of psychedelic drugs herald a revival of spirituality in America or the unleashing of destabilizing psychic forces? All these and more will be discussed in the next hour of the Spectral Skull Session. I am your host, Dane, and with me as always is my co-host, Chris. Say hello, Chris. Hi, how's everyone doing? You are listening to the Spectral Skull Session. Tales from the twilight world of myth, mystery, and imagination. The idea behind this podcast is that we explore claims about the occult, supernatural, and paranormal from an analytical standpoint. We're open to the existence of a world beyond the five senses, and we dismiss that dogmatic skepticism that insists that any story about the unexplained has to reduce to hallucinations or swamp gas. But we're not committed to any particular theory or philosophy about what the paranormal is, and we realize that, whatever is out there, the answer is likely to be more complicated than any existing model or theory. What we bring to the table is small s skepticism, a skepticism that we throw as much on the mainstream accounts as we do on the supernatural story. Okay, let's get started. All right. So I think the biggest thing I'm excited to talk about during this particular session is the concept of magic beer. Oh, yeah. So um, we're going to be talking today about the immortality key, the secret history of the religion with no name. It comes from St. Martin's Press and was written by Brian Moore Arascu. And he argues that, yes, indeed, the secret of the ancient Greeks that held their civilization together was a psychedelic beer. So, uh, beer, but plus something a little extra. Uh, any chance he reveals the recipe for this magical beer? I'd like to get my hands on some of that, Dane. Well, you would want to be very careful with it because he says that it was an ergot, so that's a kind of fungus that grows on barley. And his concern is that, and this is also my concern, um, most people who who consume ergot have terrible experiences. They have convulsions or um, they get gangrenous rotting of their limbs. So they do have hallucinations, but they also often die. So he thinks that whatever they did, the secret for making ergot safe has been uh, lost to us. But let's get into that as we get into the show. All right. Sounds good. Oh, but you are right, Chris. I do have um, a recipe for psychedelic beer that we could share with the readers or at least um, show our listeners, perhaps put on the website for later. But it has nothing to do with the book we'll be discussing today. Okay, great. Well, let's get to it then. Yeah, let's get to it. So I do want to say that uh, this is by Brian C. Um, Muraresco who graduated Phi Beta Kappa from Brown University with a degree in Latin, Greek, and Sanskrit. He's actually an international lawyer, but he's been obsessed with this idea that the ancient Greeks and indeed ancient religious peoples throughout history uh, were using psychedelics and that psychedelics add something powerful to the spiritual experience that we've lost today in the modern world. So he set out to prove 
starting with the ancient Greeks, that they were indeed using psychedelics. So it all got started. He was reading the research at, uh, coming out of John Hopkins University. Researchers there, they in fact have a psychedelic research unit. And I believe it was 2016, they published results on a study of psilocybin. That's the psychedelic mushroom. Uh, they studied psilocybin's effects on anxiety and depression in cancer patients. And they found that 87% of the 29 volunteers reported increased life satisfaction, increased well-being for months afterwards. 70% of those participants reported that their single experience with psilocybin was in the top five of the most meaningful experiences of their entire lives, comparing the experience to the birth of a child or the death of a parent. Dr. Roland Griffiths, a researcher at John Hopkins, said that the drug-induced ecstasy of psychedelics is virtually identical to that reported by prophets and visionaries throughout recorded history. So Mororescu noticed this, and he said, could it be that the ancient Greeks were using psychedelics? And he traced it back to a ritualistic ceremony called the Eleusinian Mysteries. So let me give you some reasons for thinking that the Eleusinian Mysteries sound like the experience of somebody who's been using psychedelics. Sources say that, quote, those who participated in these mysteries were forever changed for the better, and they no longer feared death. The philosopher Plato is believed to have participated in the mysteries. And in his dialogue on the immortality of the soul, Phaedo, he writes that he enjoyed a blessed sight and vision, which he witnessed in a state of perfection, and said, our mysteries have a very real meaning. He that has been purified and initiated shall dwell with the gods. Cicero, the Roman statesman and philosopher, also participated in the Eleusian mysteries, and he wrote about them in a letter. He wrote, quote, For it appears to me that among the many exceptional and divine things your Athens has produced and contributed to human life, nothing is better than those mysteries. For by means of them, we have been transformed from a rough and savage way of life to the state of humanity and have been civilized, just as they are called initiations. So in actual fact, we have learned from them the fundamentals of life and have grasped the basis not only for living with joy, but also for dying with a better hope. And lastly, the Greek philosopher and historian Plutarch said this about the mysteries. Because of those sacred and faithful promises given in the mysteries, we hold it firmly for an undoubted truth that our soul is incorruptible and immortal. Let us behave ourselves accordingly. And further, Plutarch said, when a man dies, he is like those who are initiated into the mysteries. Our whole life is a journey by torturous ways without outlet. At the moment of quitting it come terrors, shuddering, fear, amazement, then a light that moves to meet you, pure meadows that receive you, songs and dances, and holy apparitions. So the idea here, uh, this is what struck the author of the book we're discussing today, was that the positive and life-changing experiences that people are having when they use uh, psilocybin mushrooms sound very similar to the sense of immortality, the change in one's attitude on life, 
that were experienced by the ancient Greeks and some of the Romans. Any any thoughts on that so far? Um, you know, it, it sounds uh, very reminiscent of a lot of the things that you hear from people who have really intense trip experiences on, you know, LSD or sometimes even mushrooms. You know, I um, was going through some Reddit stories, you know, in anticipation of this episode. And, um, you know, I have a story. It's a little bit interesting. I, I think it might be a good time to share that now. Um, this was posted by Red Pugabim eight months ago. I have family deep into the Mormon church and the whole Jehovah's Witness thing. Though my immediate family strayed from either religion and raised me essentially without ever really talking about God or whatever. Before trying LSD, which was about a year and a half ago, I was an atheist. After trying it, I was still an atheist. I had a fairly small dose with a lot of weed, so I wasn't exactly satisfied with the trip. Fast forward to a week later. I end up cutting slivers of paper off the edges of a 3x5 blotter. I to this day don't know how much I took, but I dropped it at midnight and ended up not sleeping until about 10 a.m. When it hit me, it hit me hard. I lost all sense of myself. Why I was in my bed geeking so hard or how to even type. The main thing yelling me I took a heroic dose was the fact that I could not type. I was so lost in space that I actually experienced physical inebriation. I sent a lot of texts to my closest friend to listen to music and suddenly decided to go limp and fall back onto my pillow. My head falls, hits the pillow, and I can see my field of view go through the bed and into, I don't even know what to call it, but if you've seen Interstellar, think of the end where the dude is in the massive library of existence. Haven't seen the whole movie in a while, forgive me. I suddenly had a thought. This is existence. I'm imagining it. Imagining it. If I try hard enough, I can enter this realm and alter reality. A little delusional in theory, but in the moment, I felt total peace. I ended up going outside to tell some friends my theory at 8 a.m. when I have come down, but I remember emphasizing universal consciousness under the guise of solipsism, and I certainly felt more apt to being spiritual after that. I didn't have an archetypal revelation from God or whatever, but the experience opened my mind to something beyond what we can scientifically define right so this is a kind of informal experience this guy's just kind of doing this but uh it certainly alters his perception of reality to the sense that it's kind of opening him up to the spiritual realm in his own words um and, and certainly you know if we were to look at any number of encounters where people are um taking hallucinogens we'll see these types of god experiences coming up again or this idea of being transported to another realm whether that be kind of classically spiritual in the guise of uh, typical religions that were acculturated to or even remember back to dmt elves and the kind of dmt world that people were finding themselves in that's very interesting chris so here we have an example a real life modern day example of a person uh having a psychedelic experience and describing it as having a spiritual dimension to it and he said that he was not particularly religious, right? He was, I think, a, said a apostate from the Mormon church. Yeah, he described himself as an atheist prior to this experience. And he's not saying he believes in anything specifically afterwards, but uh, he doesn't seem to be an atheist anymore. He's open to the possibility of spiritual existences. Well, that's excellent. So that's what 
Marescu is suggesting with his book is that it takes psychedelics for most of us to have that profoundly meaningful experience that we would call spiritual. So he doesn't claim that that's all there was to the Eleusinian mysteries, merely that most of us aren't going to be able to have a mystical experience unless we have a little something extra added to it. So it's really interesting to think here, you have an example of a guy, there's no ritual or ceremony, right? He doesn't know what to expect. He's doing it on his own. And he describes that as having spiritual dimension to it. Mm -hmm, Absolutely. How much more powerful might that have been in the context of widespread social acceptance of a particular theological framework? So everybody believes in these gods and they get psyched up. You spend like a year getting ready for the mysteries. You would often fast. People would tell you about, I can't tell you what the mysteries are because it's penalty of death, but they're incredible. They'll make you realize you're immortal, right? They would journey to Athens, and then they would have to do a 13-mile walk to the temple. And then at the temple, there was like a week-long series of like celebrations and ceremonies. There were minor and major mysteries, and we don't know any of the details. We just know a little bit about the minor mysteries, and we know they revolved around the agricultural goddess Demeter and her daughter Persephone. And so it was an agricultural cult that people were participating in. So I think you can imagine, Chris, how much power could be there if you come for a religious ceremony and it's kind of a pilgrimage that you spent years getting ready for and you've got all this suggestion and then they also spike you. They they give you a, a spiked substance, something like LSD or psilocybin. Uh, It doesn't seem too far-fetched to think that that could elevate what would be like a trip to Sunday Mass for many of us, you know, boring to transcendent experience. Yeah, that would certainly make a Sunday Mass more interesting for sure. These mysteries were practiced from 600 B.C., to 392 AD. They were only finally stopped by the Roman Emperor Theodosius. He was a Christian and it was part of the Christian persecution of paganism. Our readers, our listeners may be aware that first the pagans persecuted the Christians in the Roman Empire, but then the tables reversed and then the Christians took over and persecuted the pagans. Uh, And then in 396, this Visgoth named Alaric came down, and he just destroyed the temple. They had a a center of the temple called the Telestherion, and uh, he just destroyed it. I'm not sure why he had some kind of problem with it. But, so I I think that our readers or listeners will agree that it's pretty plausible that you could add something to a religious ceremony and enhance it, for a lot of people at least. I guess the question that I would like us to spend a little time talking about, though, is what's the evidence? So what's the evidence that, in fact, the ancient Greeks were doing some kind of powerful psychedelic drug? Well, there's a couple different points that Morescu draws from to support his case. He, first of all, points out that because Demeter is an agrarian god uh, and Ergot, which is this fungus that he thinks that they would have used in ancient Greece, grows on wheat or barley, that it would have made sense that they would have incorporated 
this, you know, highly toxic fungus, found a way to incorporate that into their most sacred of rituals. But I've already pointed out one problem with that, ergot produces about two dozen known alkaloids, and none of them have been isolated and found to produce the same kinds of effects that were seen in like the John Hopkins studies on psilocybin. Nevertheless, it's possible that ergot was one element and there was another psychedelic, or that the Greeks had a way of modifying that alkaloid that we don't have today. So they were sophisticated people and they practiced sophisticated chemistry, although they didn't call it by that name. And they may have found ways to manipulate the molecule to do something that we can't do. Another source of evidence that Marescu draws from is this idea that um, if you just look at classic texts, there's all kinds of evidence that drug use was very common, just sort of accepted and understood as an element of life in the Greek world. And Chris, didn't you look into some of this uh, evidence that uh, drug use was widespread in the ancient Greek world? Yeah, so I was looking in particular at um, passages from Homer's The Odyssey, where he discusses the sorceress goddess uh, Circe and her usage of uh, essentially a magical potion and then also, I've looked at the Bacchae by Euripides, the ancient Greek playwright, where we also see the use of uh, potion in that mythology, uh, kind of in terms of the birth of the god Dionysus, who is a central character of this play. Uh, but aside from this, we see characters, the Mayanads, these are women who have been kind of enchanted by Dionysus and thrown into an ecstatic frenzy, who are out of touch with reality. Um, and so a little bit about Circe as a character in the ancient Greek pantheon. She was the daughter of Helios the Titan and the ocean nymph Percy. Uh, she used drugs and incantations to change humans into wolves and lions and swine. And in fact, in the Odyssey, she turns his men into uh, swine and animals, and as he's kind of going, uh, going to meet her, he's able to rescue them by means of the intervention of the god Hermes. So Hermes meets up with them and, and warns him and then gives him an herb that will counteract the effect of uh, whatever potion or magical drug that Circe puts in her food that transforms men into animals. Now, it's interesting, you know, as we're reading the story, they're literally turning into animals, but one might also consider the kind of metaphorical nature by which a drug might put people in touch with their kind of base animalistic desires. And so, of course, he takes the drug, he kind of overcomes her, and then she's a fine hostess. Uh, if we go over to the Bacchae and a little bit of the background on the god... All right, but Chris, before you go there, can yeah. we say... Just to wrap up our, the, the significance of Circe, mm -hmm. there, there were two things that Marescu is drawing from there. One is that he says there's actually a recipe, that you actually get a recipe for what he calls a kukion, which is apparently the Greek word for potion or mixture. And mm -hmm. he says that it's something like, uh, I don't know if you picked up on this in your reading, that it's, it's a mixture of barley and then grated cheese and honey. And then mm. she adds something else to it. And that something else is the the psychedelic spice that uh, allegedly would have turned people into dogs and wolves, or was it pigs? 
It's pigs. Uh, yeah, she can turn. Well, she turns people into all, all forms of animals mythologically. So lion, wolves, lions, swine. Um, but yeah, generally beast. So it's interesting also that Odysseus is warned by Hermes, who is the god of medicine, as I recall, because he's associated with the Caduceus. Yeah. And he says to Odysseus, he warns him, says, quote, she, she, Cersei, will mix thee a potion, and he uses the word kukion, and cast pharmaca into the food. So pharmaca is often translated into English as drugs, as the same root as our word pharmacon. Um, and we don't know exactly what pharmaca meant, but I think, you know, if you just pick up an English version of Homer's Odysseus, they often just say drugs in there. Uh, later, Circe is described as a polypharmacos, which is often translated as potion brewer. But it sounds like many drugs, like she's a mistress of many drugs. Yes, absolutely. And then, of course, if uh, we go to the kind of male counter counterpart, uh, Dionysus, god of wine and revelry, who is also uh, the god associated with magic in the pantheon. Now, an interesting thing about uh, Dionysus as a god in the Greek pantheon is he's the only one attributed with actually performing feats of magic. Now, that this is important to note that there's a distinction here between divine, divine feats, right? So all the gods do things that are kind of divine and we might say are magical, but that's distinguished from Dionysus, who uniquely has magic, right? Uh, which is an interesting distinction. So he does things, he can make like vines grow or trees kind of move and uh, various things and also kind of enchant people and put them in these trance states. And so one might ask, okay, why did the Greeks have this distinction between divine power and specifically magic for Dionysus? What's the difference here? And it could be, you know, this kind of pharmaca, this drug thing that's going on, right? That is distinctly unique and different from other forms of divine power. So a little bit about the background of Dionysus. So uh, Zeus brews a love potion, uh, and the love potion is actually made from his deceased son uh, Zagreus's heart, and he gives it to this princess, Princess Simile. Uh, she uh, conceives Dionysus, but she dies before giving birth. Actually, it's pretty awful. Hera convinces or tricks her into asking Zeus to appear in his true form. And so uh, Zeus becomes lightning and it kills Simile, right? And But Zeus takes the unburned child and sews that up into his thigh. And so Dionysus is born from the thigh of Zeus, so born a god or uh, a full god. Um, he's then uh, hidden away in the wilderness of Thrace, He's fed by, you know, goats and nursed by them, right? And so this is the kind of the background of the story behind the Bacchae. So in the Bacchae, uh, Dionysus is returning to his homeland, and he's rejected by the king Pentheus of Thebes and also Pentheus's mother Agave, who would have been Dionysus' mortal aunt, okay? And so the play is about this kind of... Uh, punishment for them rejecting and refusing to worship the god uh, Dionysus, right? And so they don't believe these uh, stories about uh, Dionysus' heritage being divine. And he goes through Asia, 
He gathers a cult of female work worshipers. This is the Bacchae, and he returns to take revenge. So as the play begins, he um, he shows up there. He basically tricks uh, the king into arresting him, right? And there's this kind of series of feats, like they try to bind him, but instead bind a bull, and they try to stab him, but instead they stab Shadow. And so there's kind of this... Uh, magical element going on. Uh, then Dionysus kind of enchants the the Mayanads, and the Mayanads are women of Thebes who have been more or less enchanted by Dionysus. And these are different. So this is different than the Bacchae, right? The Bacchae were the people he brought, and the Mayanads were women from this. And so from this area, and this also includes. Uh, the king's mother, Agave. Agave, she's in this group. So anyway, the king wants to see this, these women going crazy and engaged in these ecstatic things they have going on, presumably because he's a little bit lecherous. And so uh, he, Dionysus helps Pentheus to the top of a tree to get a better view of the Mayanids. And then he alerts the Mayanids that Pentheus is there. Um, possessed by this Dionysian ecstasy, they, they kill Pentheus. They rip him apart. And Agave, Pentheus's mother, thinks that she has the head of a lion, like a hunting trophy, but it's really Pentheus's head, right? So she's in this altered, ecstatic state. She's carrying the head of her son around. She thinks it's a lion's head. And then she brings it back to kind of show everybody and um, they can see that it's not a lion's head and the possession wears off and then she realizes what she has done. Uh, at the end of the play, Dionysus shows up in his true form and if he hasn't done enough already, he then turns uh, Cadmus and his wife Harmonia into snakes, right? And so uh, he, he really goes after the people in this town for rejecting him. But I think that we, we see here is this kind of, well, we have the, the kind of potion and the backstory, but the way that the Mayanads are put in a trance-like state where they are out of touch with objective and normal reality. And that's something that, you know, uniquely distinguishes Dionysus among the, the pantheon in terms of the gods and how they engage with mortals. Yeah, they're in sort of a frenzy, right? An ecstatic frenzy. Yeah. So it sounds like if this story is uh, to teach us anything about widespread use of potions and mind-enhancing substances in ancient Greece, it would be a kind of allegory about the power of these substances to change societies. Yeah, absolutely. And in fact, it completely overthrows and, and turns this kingdom upside down. Now, that's interesting. Now, Chris, do you think, though, that that the the Bacchae gives us a reason to think that, indeed, drug use was widespread in ancient Greece? Well, I think that I don't know if we can say widespread, widespread, but. Uh, given these depictions here and everything that we looked at, uh, it may have at least been part of these kind of secret 
uh, cult-like rituals that were prevalent enough, right? So maybe not everyone in the society participated in these things, but uh, enough people did for it to have impacted you know, social order and, and art, as we see here in some of these, uh, some of the most famous historical plays that we have recorded. Perhaps the Bacchae is like a description from the outside of what it's like to witness these sort of cult members. From somebody, perhaps Euripides wasn't really on the inside about uh, how they were getting whipped up into their frenzies. Well, and also keep in mind that the Mayanads and the Bacchae are different, right? So the Bacchae follow Dionysus, oh. and they aren't the ones whipped into this frenzy killing the king. That's the Mayanads. Now, interesting, if we were to kind of view this literature and kind of parse out what figuratively it could mean, perhaps one of the distinctions between the two is the Bacchae would have been prepared for this through their belief in Dionysus and uh, attendant rituals, whereas the Mayanads were just kind of let loose, right, um, without any kind of preparation. Ah, okay. So it could be read as an allegorical warning about what happens if you use these uh, pharmacon or kukion, these potions, without being properly prepared. There is a possible interpretation there. Yes. And we do know that there were all sorts of mystery cults in the ancient world. Um, not just the Eleusinian mysteries, but you know there were Dionysian uh, mysteries that I don't know anything about. Mororescu claims in the second half of his book that uh, Christianity actually stole from the Dionysiac uh, mystery cults and that the original Eucharist involved some kind of substance that they had been using. So I don't know, Chris, I think a case can be made that there was indeed widespread, uh, if not common like every day, at least it was ritualistic use of mind-altering substances in the ancient world. Absolutely. And one other piece of evidence from our book, researchers found some forensic evidence. They found ergot in the jaw of a dead man in ancient Spain. And so we don't know if he perhaps uh, had been you know, accidentally ate some bad barley and died, or if he was part of a ritual. But in that same area in Spain, so actually it's the area that today is Catalonia, they found evidence of uh, psychedelic potions in a jar using uh, chemical analysis. So this is the Hellenic community of Emporia, which was founded in 575 BC by pioneers from Ionia, which was a Greek city. So apparently the Greeks went over to Spain and they were hanging out there with another ancient group of uh, seafaring peoples, the Phocians, and they were kind of mixing it up. And what Morescu argues in his book is that the Eleusinian mysteries may have been very well protected, but there might have been like a more liberal place in the West, in Iberia, where people got looser and... That place would have been, of course, Emporium. And that is where they were doing the Eleusinian Mysteries, but kind of on their own. Of course, that's where I just said they found some ergot in the jaw of a dead man. And they also found mixing vessels that have symbolism suggestive of the cult of Demeter and Persephone. Hmm. So there's another line of evidence. Yeah, that's pretty interesting. And I know, too, that uh, a lot of... Uh 
theories surrounding the persecution of uh, witches and heretics throughout history uh, coincide with possible widespread ergot poisoning. Uh, and that's something that gets floated, uh, for instance, with the Salem witch trials, is that it could have just been, you know, uh, seasonal uh, conditions were just right, and there was ergot, and then people were having these magical experiences, right? Um, so, you know, we kind of see this used as an explanation for magic in other historical contexts. Absolutely, and Mororescu uh, has a whole section of the book dedicated to talking about European witchcraft and the uh, various heresies of Western Europe and the medieval era. He basically argues that the Roman Catholic Church has been fighting an ongoing counterinsurgency operation, or he, as he puts it, the Catholic Church invented the war on drugs because they've been having to keep down these alternative forms of spirituality that rise up in the context of herbalism and sort of like local use of medicines. He says he thinks people spontaneously discover that they can have psychedelic experiences and then they organize themselves in a new way spiritually around that substance. And so the church has been fighting to sort of keep that down. This is his argument. Mm -hmm. So there's a lot there. And perhaps one other line of evidence worth mentioning, um, Patrick McGovern, the scientific director of biochemical archaeology at the University of Pennsylvania, he has actually used chemical analysis to prove many ancient beers contain psychoactive compounds other than alcohol. He wrote a whole book about this, if our audience is interested. It's called Ancient Brews. So I don't know if he goes into detail specifically about psychedelics, but the claim is that people were putting uh, things like nightshades, uh, which some of the alkaloids can be uh, hallucinogenic, mm -hmm. or uh, morning glory, if something related to morning glory. Yeah. That kind of stuff was widespread. And they, what people did is they put it into their beers. So uh, it wasn't beer like we know it today, but they would often make like a light, a weaker beer out of barley. Mm -hmm. And they would. it was common for the ancient Greeks to put like mint in it. But then mm. he's doing analyses on these these containers that they're finding at archaeological sites. And he's finding these psychoactive compounds in the, the pieces, the broken pieces of the vessels that are still lying around. Interesting. Now, so we've talked about, so we're talking about these hallucinogens, right? But one thing we haven't talked about is when people are taking hallucinogens in these cases, are they truly having mystical experiences where they are accessing the supernatural, something otherly otherworldly that is there or are they simply hallucinating and this is just a, a product of their minds uh, on these substances yeah it's a really good and thorny philosophical question because it's hard to figure out uh, what exactly is going on it could be that when you use these substances you know if you use it correctly and perhaps maybe the ritual matters too that you can temporarily access a higher you know, state of consciousness or state of being, and you tap into something that you otherwise wouldn't be able to tap into. Hmm. Yeah, like a, a collective unconscious or something like that. Um, you know, I guess what, you know, and we'll keep coming back to this idea. We certainly saw this with the Machine Elves episode, but I guess we would expect to see some commonality and experience that could not be accounted for purely by social conditioning. 
I think that would speak to something else going on behind besides mere hallucination. And then, of course, if we saw like people were performing actual feats of magic that had impact on the physical world, obviously we would have something going on there, right? Absolutely. And I have not seen any accounts like that, you know, like someone takes a hallucinogen and they can literally fly. Like I've not read of anything like that. But of course, if we had an instance like that, you know, that would certainly be proof. Well, lots of holy people throughout history have flown. I don't know that many of them were on psychedelics. There's some evidence that a lot of them um, were not on psychedelics. Mm -hmm. I know of some holy people in various traditions who were like levitating around and they were definitely not in a tradition that was into substances. Yeah, they. I think in those traditions, they were altering their mental states through meditation, largely correct. Yeah, meditation or what they would call prayer. Um, yeah, and so... So we get some kind of altered mental state. So uh, one hypothesis might be is that, uh, as you mentioned, that maybe just taking these substances in the proper context can allow people to more readily access those states and something else is going on. Yeah, maybe. And I think this is what Morarescu is saying in the book is that, you know, mystical experiences are a natural phenomenon. It's part of the human experience. But... Most people don't have them regularly. And, you know, maybe you'll go your whole life. You might go your whole life without having one. You know, just like a person could conceivably go their whole life without seeing snow, right? Even though snow is totally natural. Mm -hmm. um, and, yeah. And so the idea here is that the psychedelics are just a way to help people who aren't natural mystics, aren't predisposed. Maybe they're not, who knows, maybe they're not psychically sensitive, right? Help those people... People probably like me, um, you know, have a peak behind the veil, as one of our past guests said. Hmm. Interesting. Any further thoughts before we begin to wrap up this session? Well, Mararescu described the psychedelic potion as a necessary component in a religious practice that held the ancient world together. Right, Chris? Mm -hmm. And he suggested that when psychedelics are integrated into communal spiritual practices, they can unlock this incredible social power. But as you pointed out, I think with the discussion of Dionysus, that it sounds like this social power can also be uh, destructive or chaotic. So if Americans are making stronger, heavier use of psychedelics in the future, in the near future, as they're expected to, I mean, we just saw Oregon legalized, right? And I think it was mm -hmm. DC decriminalized psilocybin. Mm -hmm. So does that mean, are we in for an era of social instability, the unleashing of, you know, purely naturalistic, but psychic forces that might be difficult for our civilization to manage. Well, it's an interesting point. You know, uh, if people are like the Mayanads, they're entering these states without uh, any kind of context or prep preparation, we might see that allegorical moral hold true and we might end up with social, social subversion and chaos right but coincidentally we might also see the rise of social so subcultures that better contextualize these things and experiences in a responsible way that is not only more natural as these experiences are natural 
but also beneficial to society as well. So it's hard to say, Dane. Yeah. So, I mean, I think it's going to be an unpredictable thing. One thing I would like to draw our attention to, though, is Timothy Leary, often considered the godfather of uh, LSD use in the United States. He himself, in 1961, had a warning. And he just emphasized the importance of set and setting when people have psychedelic experiences. He said, like, look, it's important you have a certain kind of mindset and that you be in a certain kind of place. That affects the experience you have, and the kind of experience you have determines how the substance changes you. So maybe we should be cautious and considerative of, you know, these things might need to be ritualized or ceremonialized, or there might need to be a communal way of managing Hmm. more widespread use of these substances. Yes, interesting stuff. Well, it's just something to think about. Do you have any final thought to take us out on? No, I think that's it, Chris. Do you want to have anything less to say yourself? I'll just say I want to add tonight for our listeners out there, uh, stay safe as well as staying strange. All right, and stay sane, everybody. <laughs>